What an incredible passage we've got before us today. What an incredible passage. Hopefully you, you're able to follow along with Andy as he read it earlier and kind of hear, hear the amazing truths that are being spoken of Jesus in this passage. We have this opportunity, um, not just this week, but over kind of six-week period, uh, we're looking in the book of Colossians, and our main aim is really just to soak in Jesus. Paul's, Paul is writing this incredible letter, probably from a prison cell to a church in Colossae, a town in what is modern-day Turkey. And he wants to write them to, to encourage them, but to focus their eyes back on Jesus, their Lord and Savior. And he wants to encourage them to, to hear all about Jesus, and he wants to encourage them to, to stay with a simple gospel, because he's heard that maybe something's up, maybe there's some false teaching that's coming into the church there. You know, some people on the inside or even externally are coming and saying, oh, Jesus is great, but is he really sufficient? Or Jesus is great, but you, you need this other experience to really get close to God. And Paul's writing and saying, no, 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 it's, it's all about Jesus. Just stick with Jesus and his simple gospel. I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. Andy gave a great intro uh, to the book of Colossae and kind of the context of it there. And this week, what do we get to do? Well, in the passage before us, we just get to soak in Jesus. Paul wants to turn the eyes of, of everyone in Colossae and tell, just get them to look upon Jesus. Eyes off their troubles, eyes off their situations and off any false teaching and look back at Jesus and just be amazed. Just be dumbfounded about Jesus as presented in the Bible. And we all need that, I think, in our lives. Whether you know Jesus personally or you don't, I, I think that's what we all need. Uh, to take our eyes off ourselves sometimes and, and back upon Jesus. And even as a church, we need that as well. Uh, for you, those of you who have been around, we've been through this process of setting up Trinity Chippum and it's been... I know, 18 months of kind of craziness and busyness and, and changes and lots of sacrifices here and there for everyone. And, and that's tough. And that could be difficult for everyone in so many different ways. And we're going through this process now of more change, of kind of uh, change of leadership and what's that going to look like. And there's kind of, oh, uh, insecurity in that as well. And, and in these times, we need to take our eyes back off ourselves and off our troubles and back on Jesus. So I'm really thankful for a passage like today. I'm really thankful for what Paul writes, and I'm thankful we get to, to look in it today. I guess what we're, we're going to do together is we're just going to walk through the passage. It's nothing too fancy, nothing too complex, but if you've got the, the Bible open in front of you, page 983 it should be, we're just going to walk through the passage. I can see what Paul says as he writes. And maybe, if, I think in your Bible, it should be the same as mine, at the kind of the, the top of this section. So we're looking at verse 15, that's a little one five. And just above it, it says, the preeminence of Christ. So that isn't kind of original from Paul. That, that's what the Bible translators have said. Tell you what, that, this kind of sums up this passage. So let's call it the preeminence of Christ. And that's great, and that, that's, that's an appropriate title. It uses that word later on. But when I was looking at this and studying this passage, I was like, how often do I use the word preeminent? Never. <laughs> I never use the word preeminent in my daily life. I don't know if you do. I, I doubt it. It's kind of not in our vocab. It's not, it's not what we talk about, the preeminence of anyone, kind of being above all, being superior, without equal. So I thought, okay, well, what word could we use today to kind of say the same thing, but it's more of an in our vocab? And I thought, well, let's keep it simple. How about Jesus is awesome? Let's start there. And immediately that feels a bit weird because everything in this world is awesome. We've kind of devalued awesome. Like, my new phone is awesome. And, and if you're a kid and you get new trainers, it's awesome. And, and a 
McDonald's meal is awesome. And there was a film a couple of years ago and it had a song and it said, everything is awesome in it. So like, what is awesome? Well, well, maybe this passage and maybe what, what Paul tells us about Jesus, Jesus really is the definition of awesome. How incredible is that? So first and foremost, let's jump in. Verse 15 through 17, Jesus is awesome in his creation. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I don't know if you've ever had uh, conversations with people. I had one just this week talking to somebody at work and he said, wouldn't it be great if we could really understand who God is and what he's like? You know, wouldn't it be so helpful if we didn't have all this confusion around so we could really know what God is like? And well, we can. Paul says straight away, he is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to see what God is like, don't look at anywhere else apart from on Jesus. It's like the week gone by, NASA sent this probe all the way out to Pluto, this planet that, well, we kicked it off the planet list a while ago, this lump of rock, and we've never quite known what it looks like. Oh, we wish we could know and understand it a bit more, and only now when we get these images up close do we say, wow, it's kind of rocky and craggy, and it's got ice everywhere, and people think there's a big heart on the side of it, and they get all excited about it. And Paul's saying straight away, you don't have to send out a probe. You don't have to send out a search party. Don't go after anything else. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, first and foremost. And he is the firstborn of all creation. And that's not saying that Jesus was born first in all creation. That's not something we would, we would hold to at all. The Bible doesn't give us that leeway in the slightest. But that somehow Jesus is the firstborn. That as in, in first century kind of Judea language, the firstborn of the family would have all the honor, all the importance, all the significance, would get the, the largest share of the land, of the, the family business, etc. Paul's saying, look, Jesus is like that in all creation. He's the number one. It all points to him. It all comes back to him. And the next verse is just incredible to understand how Jesus is involved in this creation and how he is Lord of this creation. Paul tells us, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul's really trying to make the point that it's it's all things. This, this awesome Jesus is awesome in his creation because he is Lord of all things. It's not just the little pieces of created universe. No, it's both the invisible and the invisible. Heaven and earth. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Whether it's those, those invisible uh, spiritual forces that we sometimes doubt and kind of question if they're really there. And, and as Christians, we would we'd say yes. Yes, there's a spiritual realm that we don't see but is very much active in this world. Or whether it's the, the physical realm and those rulers and authorities that are in place in governments or organizations. All things are part of Jesus' creation and come under his lordship. Three words we want to pick out from this verse to understand just how involved Jesus is in creation, how awesome he is in creation. It's by him and through him and for him. All things were created by him. That is, he has kind of the stamp of approval to say, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we, we can make that. It's, it's in my design. All creation is 
by him. It is through him. He is, he's the very means of all creation. You could think, I'll try and use analogies of kind of machines or, or, or equipment, but that's just too kind of plain and mechanical. But, but somehow Jesus is the means of how all this created universe came to be. And, and crazy enough, it's all for him as well. The universe isn't purposeless. It isn't uh, hanging around in just limbo waiting for reason or purpose. No, no, no. All, all of this creation that was created by him and through him, it's, it's also for him. He is the very epicenter of all creation. That's how awesome Jesus is. And if we ever thought that somehow kind of God was, was distant from creation in some way, if we ever thought that, that maybe God created all this stuff and that's incredible and then he stepped back and he just isn't really involved anymore. You know, the world just carries on in chaos without his, his input, without his control. The next verse kind of says otherwise. And, and it's really a tingler for me that verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And it's that second part I want us to really think about. And in him, all things hold together. See, Jesus didn't just uh, create the universe and then pull back. No, no, no. He's, he's involved in sustaining all things. In him, all things hold together. It's difficult to comprehend what that really means. But, but just think about all the, the small things in this world. You know, the atoms with the electrons flying around. Or the atoms forming uh, molecules and the f- molecules forming protein chains and protein cells and cells, organisms, and then all the way up to the big scale of gravity, keeping planets and stars and black holes all in perfect alignment. All things hold together in Him. It's a phenomenal statement. It's an incredible reality that, that Jesus is awesome in His creation, in His universe, because He holds all things together. I watched a film um, just the other week about uh, uh, Stephen Hawking, the, the famous astrophysicist. It's called A Theory of Everything. And it's quite a good film. It's, it's really well made and it's got some good music as well. But, and, and part of the story of his life as he is, is just unraveling these phenomenal uh, thoughts and, and, and ideas and equations for the universe is he's after, he's chasing this theory of everything. He's after this, what if there was one kind of group of equations that just explained everything? From the really big things of gravity to the really small things of like quantum mechanics. What if, what if there was one thing that brought them all together and explained how the universe just happens? And I found like through the whole film, I'm like, awesome, you know, carry on in your quest. Write your sums. Uh, explore more. That's brilliant. But, but don't miss the point that, that Jesus is the very center of it all. That he holds all things together. He is the theory of everything. So this Jesus that we find in the Bible that, that walked this earth is and was awesome in his creation. Well, so what? What, what does that mean for you and me? Some great high ideas and theories, but what does that mean for us? Well, maybe the, like the, the early church in Colossae, uh, you feel kind of the scale of this world. What I understand from uh, some of the commentators is uh, the, the early church and the church in Colossae and in, in their Greek thinking were, were amazed by Jesus, but kind of scared about this physical world and just how big and scary it was. Because just all the forces and, and the realities of what was going on, you know, sometimes the world felt like it was trying to keep you alive. Sometimes it felt like it was trying to kill you. 
And then you look at the power and the majesty of the waves and the wind. And then look to the stars and the heavens. And oh gosh, I am small and tiny in comparison to all of this creation. And maybe we feel like that as well sometimes. That that we feel slightly lost in the magnitude of this world and what's going on. And sometimes it can feel chaotic. I think this passage reminds us that, that no, hold on, that Jesus is at the very center of his creation. That the, the creator world around us has purpose. He is the one who is the, the source, the sustainer, the summit of all things is Jesus Christ. So whether our lives go through ups and downs, and they will because this is a broken world filled with sin, whether our lives go up or down in real ways, that we can look to the, the creator of this universe, the one who is the source the one whom all creation goes back to him. It's all designed for him and we can know him. So Jesus is awesome in his creation. And next, Paul moves to how awesome he is in his, his rec- rescue or maybe his reconciliation is the word that Paul uses. That's found in verses 18 through 20. Let's read that through because we're actually going to work back up through it kind of one of these ways that Paul kind of expands an idea and and it's kind of helpful maybe to work um, back to front on this. So let's read verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So like I say, let's, let's start at that last verse, verse 20. Well, what has Jesus Christ accomplished? He's reconciled all things. In verse 20, it says he has reconciled all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's a peacemaker. And what, what is that reconciliation? Maybe you're not used to that word or kind of what Christianity is all about. We would call it the gospel, the good news. That Jesus Christ, this awesome creator, this awesome rescuer, came to earth in flesh to live a life we could not live, to die in our place, to, to be raised from the dead, that we might have a, an opportunity, a way to know God again, personally, relationally. That is the good news of Christianity. And that is what Jesus accomplishes by the blood of his cross. He's a peacemaker. And isn't it incredible in, in verse 19 that, that he accomplishes this? Why and how? Because all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. So all the, all the joy, all the love, all the meaning, all power, all etc., etc., etc. of God is in Jesus Christ. That's how he can accomplish such a great reconciliation work. And that kind of arrests us as well, I think. Because if you were here last week and you heard that, that really uh, the, the Bible, the Colossians, uh, what we talk about here at Trinity Chippenham is kind of a, it's a simple gospel. That Christ is sufficient. Not just for salvation, but for the whole of your life. And this verse reminds us, if we ever think that that Jesus is a bit thin or lacking or kind of we need to go find experience elsewhere or dig into something else, it says, no, 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 all the fullness of God is in Jesus Christ. 
So don't think you're ever going to get to the bottom of enjoying him. Don't think you're ever going to figure it all out. There's infinity to enjoy in the person of Jesus Christ. And by making that peace, by reconciling uh, us to him, by, by having all the fullness of God within himself, he started a new work. He started a church. In verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. That is, not just this church, but the global church. For all time, Jesus is the head of the body. It's kind of an organic sense, isn't it? You know, we are, we are the, the organic body, and he's organically connected us as the head. It's his body, he's going to lead it on. And he starts this by being, uh, in the beginning, I guess it says again, the firstborn from the dead. So he accomplishes something that none of us could ever accomplish, that, that the church can never imagine or try on its own. He says, look, 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 just so you know how awesome I am in my rescue, how awesome I am in my reconciliation for you, I'm going to come back to life. And just like he's the firstborn in creation, he's literally this time the firstborn from the dead, the first ever to rise from the dead by himself. And by doing so, he, he conquers death And gives all of us hope. He gives each and every one of us who call him Lord hope. That's why uh, these crazy Christians in churches sometimes talk about an afterlife. Talk about the hope of heaven and a future. Not because we think we can do it on our own. Not because there's there's some kind of ethereal, oh maybe, maybe there's there's life after death. No, because because Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. Because he was a trailblazer. Because he blew the doors open on death and walked right through so that we can follow in his footsteps. Just so we don't uh, miss the point, just so we don't think that, that somehow we can compete with this Christ in any way, Paul slips in that statement in verse 18 that in everything he might be preeminent. Or as we might say right now, that in everything he is awesome. There's no competing with Jesus here. There's no trying to one-up Jesus. You know when you sit around and, and you tell stories, and my story is better than yours, and oh, but I did that. Oh. There's no one-upping Jesus here. Not when the, the, the all creation was made by him and through him and for him. Not when he is the firstborn from the dead. There's no one-upping Jesus here. He is the very definition of awesome. So Jesus is awesome in his creation. He's awesome in this rescue, reconciliation work. But again, what, what does it mean for you and me? I think this, this section, understanding that, that Jesus has reconciled us, that he's begun a new work to build his church, is encouraging news to anyone and everyone who, well, not in the, just only in life, when life gets you down, but I, I think especially to, to any of us who would call uh, maybe this place or another place home, any, any other church that we would call home. Because it's so easy to, for our eyes to, to come down upon ourselves and what's going on around us. It's so easy for our hearts to get heavy because sometimes the church disappoints and it frustrates. And we kind of yearn for it to be better. And only if, and would it just be an oh, if, if, if and only if. And what's going to happen in the future? And, and am I somehow responsible for all this? And, uh, and the pains of even just being church can weigh us down. And a passage like this is brilliant because it lifts our eyes off ourselves and our troubles and our issues and back to Jesus and says, look, no, no, forget it. It's his church. 
He's done the work. He's the one where the fullness of God dwells in. He's blown the doors open on death. He's reconciled you and me. It's his church. It's his body. He's not going to leave his body rotting at the side. The Bible elsewhere talks about the church as being the bride of Christ. That one day we're going to be presented to him as his bride. No groom leaves his, his bride kind of just at the side of the road. No, 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 we're not going to be forgotten about. The church is not going to be lost or broken down or fail. The church is the body of Christ. He's going to see it through. He's going to bring it to fruition. He is the head of the church. We don't have to panic about what's going on. So this Jesus is awesome in his creation. He is awesome in this uh, rescuing work he does for you and me and to create the church. And... And he can be awesome in your life too. Or should I say he can be awesome in, in the hope for our future. Let's read verses 21 through 23 and just see how suddenly this all becomes personal. Paul's been talking about, about Jesus, uh, about Christ, and maybe sounds a bit distant. And suddenly we get all personal. Verse 21, the language changes to you and you and you. So let's read it. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." It suddenly switches. It suddenly gets really personal. We've been talking about Jesus, but now it's back on you, you Colossians, you and me right here. Paul says, look, just remind yourselves, Colossians, that you were once uh, alienated. You were once far away from this awesome God, this awesome creator and redeemer. Why? Because you had a hostile mindset. You didn't think much of God. In fact, you didn't like him in the slightest. And because you had that hostile mindset, you, you, you kind of did some stupid stuff. You did some non-God stuff. You did some evil stuff because anything not of God is going to be evil. So he wants to set the scene. Rem remind yourselves, Colossians, remember where you were. Well, let me tell you again that, that he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We've heard that already. Isn't that incredible that, that this Jesus, this awesome creator and redeemer would do that for you and for me? But here's where he moves on to the hope. In, in order for what? Why, why have you done this, Jesus? Why have you reconciled? Why? And he says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's not just enough that, that Jesus would be this awesome creator. It's not enough that he would just reconcile you and me into relationship. No, he, he desperately wants you and I to appear before him one day holy and blameless and above reproach. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that phenomenal that, that Jesus would want that of you and me? People who kind of don't think much of him sometimes and mess up and have a, a twisted mindset towards him. He wants to present us before himself, holy and blameless and above reproach. That's the hope for our future that Jesus presents. And we say, oh, come on, that's, that's not me right now, is it? I am not holy and blameless and above reproach. You do not know what I said this morning. And I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not holy and blameless and above reproach in the slightest. 
And here's the kind of the already but not quite yet of what Paul's trying to get at. Look, he says, you're, you're reconciled. Jesus has made it possible for you to be in relationship with God. But he's still got work to do in your life. He's still going to bring you through a process. And there is going to be one day where, where God calls time on all this. He says, look, enough. I want my people to come back and be in a new creation with me. See each other face to face. And in that day, we will be presented holy and blameless. So in that sense, again, we don't have to worry about trying to work this up in ourselves. Oh, I need to be holy and blameless. No, no, no. He's going to do the work to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. But there's an if, isn't there? There's an if in the start of 23. I didn't see that. I didn't see there was an if. There's always an if, isn't there? There's always an if. When, when the story sounds really good, when there's a, a God who creates and creates so well, when there's a God who reconciles and wants this amazing future hope, there's always an if or a but. Come on, what is it? What is it? It's, it's like when you, you hear on the radio that you can own a brand new car, you know, whatever it is, a brand new shiny Mercedes or BMW, and all you have to do is pay 200 pounds a month. You know, that's, that's easy. We can all pretty much afford 200 pounds. Ah, but... And they say this bit really fast so you can't hear it. But you have to give us lots of money at the start. And you can't drive it too many miles in a year. And, and don't get it scratched because otherwise we want it back. And it's actually not your car at the end of the day, by the way. It's still, still ours. There's always an if or a but, isn't there? Come on, Paul. What's the if? What's, what's the big catch of all this? What have you got to do? Have you got to pay some more money to the church? God's all about money, isn't he? He probably wants our money. Or is it a certain ritual we have to perform? Do we have to pray a certain way or sing a certain song? Or do we have to go on some sort of retreat, shave our heads, chant, perform some magical incantation? What, what, what is it, Paul? What, what's the if you're trying to get at? Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, on of which I, Paul, became a minister. Oh, that doesn't seem too radical, does it? So all you're saying, Paul, is, is all we have to do is just continue in the faith, continue in the hope of the gospel, this simple gospel that, that Jesus Christ lived and died in our place and offers us salvation. That, that, that's really it, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Just continue in that faith. Don't go after anything else. Don't try and seek out any other explanation. Don't try and seek out any other additions to this Christian gospel. That's it. The simple hope of Jesus Christ. So much so, he says to the Colossians, you, you need to be stable and steadfast, not shifting in this. And again, from the commentaries they talk about in the original language, which would be in Greek here, they just talk about the fact that, that these words kind of point to a house's foundation. That's kind of the, the image Paul's trying to get across here for the Colossians. So I don't know if you've seen a, a house's foundation, a building's foundation. That's, you generally dig a big pit, like the footprint of where the house is going to go. I don't know, you maybe fill it with some, some coarse rubble to make a good base. You fill it with uh, lots of steel work so it all binds together. And then you pour concrete all the way around it. That's a great foundation for a home. 
in our moral world, that, that's exactly what we need to hear. That's, that's where we need to stick. We need to be that stable and steadfast in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. We need to plant our feet in the reality of how awesome and incredible Jesus Christ is and never budge from there. Not because we're awkward or weird, but just because we know how awesome Jesus is and we don't want to go after anything else. Again, so what? So what if if Jesus has this incredible hope for our future and, and all we have to do is actually stick in the simple faith of knowing him and enjoying him and loving him. So what? Maybe, maybe this is totally bizarre and, and weird and maybe new for you um, because maybe you, you know a little bit about this Jesus but not a whole lot. Uh, and, and at times we get presented with Jesus who is kind of meek and mild or maybe just a good teacher. Or he's a very wise man or he just got caught up in the wrong stuff at the wrong time and he never really proclaimed to be God. And, and actually, no, no, this, this word in the Bible, probably written down just some 30, 40 years after the life and death of Jesus Christ, says, no, 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 Jesus is all these things. He's the definition of awesome in creation, in reconciliation, and in a hope for your future too. And if you're stunned by that, if you're amazed by that, then, then do what we all need to do time and time again. Just come back to God and say, can you convince me of that? Pray to him and say, can you break into my life and convince me that's who you really are? Uh, And to read this passage maybe over and over again and wrestle with it. And for maybe, for those of us who might know Jesus and and declare him to be our Lord and Savior, this is a reminder, this is just a great time to to look to Jesus and remember that he is is this awesome. To continue in him, to not let the, the, the issues of life and church drag us down, but instead to be reminded of how incredible he is. And that's only going to happen if, if we hear from him and if we hear from each other as we build each other up. So maybe the encouragement that we need to take away is, is to again be in God's word, to, to be seeing how incredible Jesus Christ is throughout the whole of Scripture. And perhaps we as a church need to be building each other up as it talks about elsewhere in in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs by just reminding each other about how incredible Jesus is. Oh yeah, isn't isn't Jesus phenomenal because of how he's involved in creation? Isn't Jesus phenomenal in how he's reconciled not just you and me, but us to him? Isn't it incredible that one day Jesus will come back and we'll be with him? All this language of of awesome and how supreme and how sufficient and how incredible Jesus is is great, but but you know what? It can feel a bit distant at times, can't it? It can maybe feel a bit impersonal. Perhaps this Jesus is just some kind of otherworldly force, this kind of uh, great God in the sky. But no, he's not. He's, He's awesome, but he's really close. Paul says in, in verse 20 that, that he made peace by the blood of his cross. And again in 22, that he's reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This is not just some instant, uh, distant, awesome God. This is an up close and personal in the flesh would be prepared to bleed for you and me, God. No other God does that. No other God is like that. And that's, 
I think why Jesus gave us this simple meal of communion to remember him by. I think he realized that, that we're going to doubt just how awesome he is and, and how kind of fleshy and real his death upon the cross really was. So he said, look, I'll give you this simple meal that you can remind each other, maybe week by week or whenever you do it, remember me. And that's what we have before us. And that's what we're going to uh, partake of in a minute. There's just uh, some bread and some grape juice on each of the tables. And this is a simple meal that, that Jesus gave his disciples the night before he went to the cross. And he, he took the bread and he broke it and said, take this, eat, this is my body. This is how, how fleshy and up close I'm going to get to you. And he took the cup and he said, drink, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. This is how we're going to be reconciled. I'm going to have to shed my blood so that you can know God up close and personal again. It's going to cost me. It's going to be bloody. And he, he goes on further, and this kind of links in with, with our thinking of a future hope, because he says, I'm not going to drink of this cup again. I'm not going to take this wine again until you and I are face-to-face in my Father's kingdom. So every time we take this meal, every time we, we take the bread and we drink this wine, we're rem- reminded that, ah, yeah, one day we're going to be in his presence, aren't we? Like I said before, he's, he's going to make us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's your future hope. That's the incredible future hope of anyone who calls Jesus Lord and Christ. So in a second, I'm going to pray, and we're just going to take a moment's silence to take the bread and the juice. And, and a few seconds after that, we're going to start thinking about a song and learning a new song that talks all about how Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation, the awesome central, centrality of, of everything in this life and in this world. So after I pray, if, if you know Jesus, if you know him and love him as your Lord and Savior, then please do take part. If you don't, I just ask you to refrain. This is not some kind of uh, voodoo magic that somehow makes you a Christian, so we don't want you thinking that. And, and it's really just, it's an important symbol for anyone who calls Jesus Lord. But think about what it means. And for each and every one of us who, who do partake, then we can remember that, wow, isn't Jesus awesome? <laughs> Isn't Jesus phenomenal in his creation, in, in the work he's done of reconciling us? Isn't it phenomenal that he is he's an up-close-and-personal God who would bleed on our behalf? Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, that one day when we take this cup, it will be with you in person, and we will be homely, holy and blameless and above reproach in your sight. Let's pray to this awesome God. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus so he could show us what you are like, so the the visible Jesus Christ should show us what the invisible God is truly like. Thank you for for how incredible, how awesome, how supreme, how preeminent he is. And you know it, don't you, because you've been in love with him, if you've been in communion with him before all creation. You've enjoyed him And we pray that uh, now, as we take this communion uh, meal, that we might just remember and be amazed by who you are, Jesus. Thank you for for being all that we could not be. Thank you for being um, 
absolutely and intricately involved in all creation in the world. Thank you for shedding your blood on the cross to reconcile us to you. And thank you so much that you would take us sinful people and your future hope for us is actually to be with you in your presence, sharing a meal again, holy and blameless and above reproach. Thank you for that future hope we have in you. Thank you that you accomplish all things and all we need to do is be stable and steadfast in who you are. Help us because we're people that wander away. We're people whose hearts uh, forget and wander and struggle and people whose hearts get weighed down by the things of this world. Help us to be stable and steadfast and not shifting from who you are and the simplicity of your gospel, we pray. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.